Good morning, church. <clears throat> so glad you guys are here today. Welcome to uh, our live stream audience as well. It's always exciting. Merry Christmas again and Happy New Year. We had kind of a three-day celebration of Christmas, and so uh, that's always a great time to be able to do. We had a great Christmas Eve uh, service here uh, as well. Now, i got to tell you, I received two signs today that the holiday eating season is nearing a close. Just to let you know, those of you that have probably been overdoing a little bit, like me, the first one was when I came by Super 8 Donuts this morning on my way in. And there was a snake line, the drive through that went all the way to Gene Cox. And then you could not fit another car in the parking lot for people inside the donut shop. So I figured, I don't know this for sure, but everybody's getting that last donut in, right? New Year's coming. I mean, that sweet, delicious donut, maybe kolache. And the reason I tell you that, and it was a sign to me, was because I was a little bit perturbed because I couldn't get in and get my last kolache, you know? They were inconveniencing me. So that was my first sign. The second was during All Hail King Jesus, which I love. Uh, and I popped a button here on the top. Let me get a close-up there. I popped it. It's just hanging by a thread there. And so when you can't sing out your praises without popping a button, it may be time to go on a diet. So uh, <clears throat> just at a personal level, I wanted to share that with you. Uh, and speaking of holiday eating, we want to pray for Mike uh, Kellett uh, today. Mike is under the weather. Uh, he was due up, and I've been pressed into service, but I'm excited uh, about this text we have today. And I want to have Malia Fortenberry come up and, uh, and share uh, scripture with us. Now, Malia is 15 years old. She goes to OCS. Of course, she's the daughter of Rick and Shelby. And i got to ask you, Malia, my one question, because you you're, have a lot of talents and abilities, but the thing I marvel most is that Shelby is your mom, and yet you're so normal. I mean, how does that happen, church? Right? Do you have an answer for that? Uh, not really. Okay, good. All right. Well, let's just share the scripture thing. Okay. John twenty one twenty five says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Thank you, Malia. How about a little round of applause for Malia? Oh, here, Malia, you're supposed to take that with them, sorry. I don't need that rolling around. Uh, I didn't welcome the Fellowship Center. Welcome to you guys as well. We're glad you're here today. <clears throat> um, last week, we had sort of a full circle story in the first 14 verses of John 21. And if you want to turn there or get your phones there, uh, we're going to be finishing up that chapter today. But it was, it was kind of centered on Peter. And there were six other disciples that were there as well. And we talked about really returning to our first love, going back. And for the disciples, it was that moment when they were able to go back and remember the first time Jesus said, follow me. And because now a lot has happened, right, over this three-year period of time. And they're about to be unleashed on this unstoppable adventure that we're excited to start telling you about next week. But when you look at Peter, you saw there was a sort of an apprehension that was there with him because, you know, he's still trying to get his sea legs for how he goes forward. He had the terrible three-time denial of Jesus in a public way. And so you feel like from reading these scriptures that he's still sort of reeling from that. One thing I didn't have a chance to mention last week, and since I'm up this week I get to mention, is apparently there had been... Sometime when Jesus had appeared to Simon, 
Peter individually during all these appearances. And it was actually before he appeared to the other disciples. Luke 24, uh, 34 says that when these two guys that were on the road to Emmaus that we talked about, when they came back and reported that to the other disciples, they said in verse 34, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. So it seemed like there was some other time. Paul says the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, when he said that after he was resurrected, Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So there seemed to be some moment of reconciliation privately between Jesus and Peter before we get to this moment here in John 21. And, you know, what I believe is, is that this is now a way, what's going to happen today in our text is sort of a public way to express a private confession. And I think that was very important for Peter to be able to do with these other disciples and to everybody. Because you remember, when we get to Acts chapter 1 and 2, he's going to be the man. He's going to be out front. And so he's got to be able to deal with this stuff that's going on in his life. And it really brings to, to my mind an old saying that, that I believe is still true today. The more public the sin, the more public the confession. And when things are out there and the community knows and the church knows and people know and, and there's something in your life that has rocked someone's world, I think it's important for people to know that you've got that right with the Lord. Our church has always been a church of transparency. And the only reason that happens in a community is that people can feel free to say, I've messed up. For so many years, myself, other leaders in this church have been right down front right down front in the fellowship center and said, look, we want you to come and we want you to share. I can remember many, many years ago, and I've mentioned this before, Mac and Mary were right over there. And it really helped open this doorway of open transparency and communication that when you blow it in life, you can come to your forever family and say, I need your help. I need your support. And I need to confess to everyone that I messed up. And I think that's the moment that we're seeing here with Peter. So let's, uh, let's get our setting uh, set up to remind us, and then we'll go into this text. we got seven disciples. They're fishing all night, and they're not catching anything, which seems to be a common theme. I don't know if these guys were super successful commercial fishermen, but at least on a couple of occasions, we know they weren't having any luck. So Jesus shows up. He's disguised again, uh, and he basically directs them on where to put the nets. They do. And immediately they catch 153 large fish and they tow it into the bank without breaking the net, which is in and of itself a pretty miraculous thing. Peter, instead of taking off some clothes and jumping in, he puts on his clothes and jumps in. He shook up and starts swimming to Jesus. Now remember, he's, he's, man, he's all over the place at this moment. They come in. Jesus has a fire built. There's some fish already cooking. They take some of the other fish and clean them and add that to it. And they just sit down and have fellowship, eating a meal together. I think it's a beautiful picture of what's about to happen with the first century church, with these first group of people post-resurrection said, you know what, this is community. And it's also a perfect place for confession because that's what community does. It supports one another. And I love that it happened in this beautiful setting. It's a place of trust and honesty and forgiveness. That's what happens in community. That's what the church is supposed to be about. It's not a group of people coming together saying, we got it all together when we get together. No. 
It's a group of people that says, we know we're a mess, but you know what? We're a mess together. And we're a mess together because Jesus Christ has forgiven us. And we follow him and we trust him. All right, let's get into the text. So the first thing that's going to happen is what I call the big question. Jesus is going to ask a really big question. Do you love me? That's going to get us to this point of forgiveness. It's going to get us to this point of confession. Now, my friend Stan Williamson, and Stan, I hope you're watching. Uh, I miss you, brother. I miss your dry wit and your observations. I know you've been watching online. But Stan taught me at ULM, and one of the questions uh, that he, or one of the statements that he taught us when we were at college was he said, don't ask the question if you can't stand the answer. And there's a lot of truth to that. Because you ask somebody, do you love me? I mean, you're pretty much putting yourself out there, right? I mean, you're hoping the answer back is yes. That's a big question. It's like the first time when, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, and they're getting in that close relationship, and maybe they're getting close to maybe this is the one, and the first one that says, I love you. I mean, you're really putting it out there for the other one, right? Because what if you don't get a response? Uh Uh-oh. May I rush that, right? That's this situation. Jesus asked a big question. But then the first time he did it, this is verse 15, 16, 17. The first time he says it, he says, do you love me more than these? Now, that's always been interesting, that text to me, because who or what are these? We've got a little bit of a language barrier here is one thing, because we've got, because this is what we call a hanging pronoun, right? The pronoun is out there, but we don't know who he's referring to or what. So we got this hanging pronoun, and we got Aramaic to Greek to English, so that's kind of hard because of language. But also, we're not there, so he's obviously referring to something that's there. But what is it? Now, I've always assumed in my teaching that this was referring to the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? Which could have a couple implications. One is, do you love me more than these love me? In other words... They didn't deny me three times, but you did. Do you now love me more than these? Or it could be, do you love me more than these? In other words, are you willing to make me the Lord of your life? Not your brothers, not your fellow fishermen, not the ones who have gone through this together, but me. Could be that implication. That's what I've always thought about this text. Until recently, we were doing a podcast about this text, and Jace made the point that he had a guy that we both know, who's a wonderful, godly Christian man, who's also a really talented fisherman. I mean, he makes lures, he guides people, he's very, very good. And he asked Jace, Jace was telling the story on the podcast, he asked Jace, he said, do you, what do you think about this passage? And Jace told him what I just said, but then Jace added to it, and this is something I had never thought about before. He said, but you know, it could be that he was talking about He pointed at the fish. I mean, fishermen are impressed by 153 large fish, right? And you got the nets, you got the boat, you got the lifestyle. Everything that Peter had done up until this moment. Do you love me more than these? And so he just gave him the possibility. And then what what this man said back to Jace really amazed me. You see, he heard this text in a sermon, and him being a fisherman... When the preacher was talking about it, he thought what I'd always thought, but immediately he was convicted in his heart that the these was the lifestyle. So convicted 
that he started looking at his own life and said, you know what? I'm spending a lot more time on the water or in the water than I am with my Lord, with my family. I need to take a step back. He was convicted. So for three years, he parked his boat in the driveway and said, you know what? I'm going to spend these next three years taking an intro look at who I am. Do I love Christ more than these? And that was powerful because I've never really thought about that before. But since someone was convicted by that, and by the way, this is why you continue to study the scriptures and listen to other people. You can always be convicted in new ways by the scripture. I'm 55 years old. I've been teaching and preaching the word of God for over 30 years. And you still will learn things that make you go, hmm, and thought about it that way, which is why we keep studying, right? We don't stop. So the idea, whether it's any of those three, and they could all be right, is that Jesus has to be Lord, right? He has to be number one, no matter what. So it really goes at the concept of idolatry. Anything that we put above Christ is not good. Amen? I mean, that's right. You go back to the Old Testament. The first two commandments are what? Have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. And you have no idols that would then put something else above me. First two commandments he gave to the Jews. You go to the New Testament over 53 times. Idols or idolatry is mentioned. Now you imagine Paul's got all these problems. He's got all these first century Christians. They're Greeks. They got the Roman influence. They got the Greek influence. They got all these gods everywhere. Everybody's trying to put something above Christ. And Paul consistently says, you can't do that. And then we fast forward 2,000 years, right? Jesus said it best in Matthew 6, you can't serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You think about that. That works both ways, right? Because if you love Christ above all others, you're going to hate anything that tries to put itself above Jesus. That's the way we should be, right? But if you love anything else above Christ, eventually you're going to have to walk away from Christ. It's not going to work out. Or you're going to wind up in some kind of world of hurt. That's what happens when we put something above Jesus Christ. When Lisa and I share our testimony, part of that testimony, when Lisa shares, which is so honest and so pure. I mean, we've been doing this a few years now, but every time we're standing in front of a group of people and sharing our hearts and our story, I still marvel at the purity of our message, of what God did in our lives. Lisa talks about having idolized me since we were kids in middle school. All the way back, there was an idolized. I was, I was seen as a knight in shining armor to her. And she had this fantasy about that. It continued on when we were dating in high school. She had me on this high pedestal, even though my life at that point was a mess. I mean, I was a raging prodigal, even though I was a double secret agent right here. But she still idolized me. She idolized me when I broke her heart, took off, true prodigal. She still thought he'll come back, even though now her life is a mess. She idolized me when I swooped back in and said, man, I found the Lord. And then later we got married and she had me on that pedestal. Unfortunately, ultimately, it all crashed down. 
right here in front of many of you. The problem was when you put anything, you think, well, what man wouldn't want to be idolized and worshipped by a woman, by his wife? Man, that would be the ultimate, right? Nope. What Jesus said was true. Eventually, there'll be major trouble. And there was for us. It all came crashing down. And the reason why is because idolatry will not work. Whatever it is you put above Jesus will ultimately be your dismantling. And it was for us. You know the reason why? One reason why is because I'm not worthy of worship or being idolized. And neither are you. None of us are. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. We don't deserve worship or praise. We don't deserve glory. Only Christ does. Any good things that happens in our lives happens because he's working through us and we're allowing it to happen. That's what we're called to. It's never about your glory. If anything is above the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, you are headed for failure. Good news is you can come back because when Lisa replaced me with Jesus as the Lord of her life, things got better for her quickly. And you know what? It didn't take long for things to get better for me and for us. And by the grace of God, 21 years later, we're able to share that message and help other people because that's what God did in us. All of us have some story of grace and redemption. Maybe something that we had, that we had made our idol, and we said, you know, we're walking away. No more. We want to be changed. I see that story being lived out every day here over and over and over again. I asked you this morning, here's the question for you, the big question. Do you love anything more than Jesus? You fill in that blank. If it's there, you need to start a road of repentance today. Don't keep that there. You'll fail. Now, one more thing I want to mention about this passage before we move on to the answers. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but there is some language difference. The Greeks have four different words for love. You know, we only have one. But obviously they're different, right? I love Lisa deeply. I love kolaches. But there's a difference there, right? You know, I mean, I can do without the kolaches. I can't do without her. So we have one word that we express love in different ways. The Greeks had four. There are two that are present in this text. Phileo, which is a brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's the idea. And agape, which is a sacrificial Christian love that we see unique in Christianity, that word agape. So if I were reading it in Greek, Jesus said, do you phileo me? Peter, more than these. Peter's answer, yes, I phileo you. Brotherly love. Second question, do you agape me? Jesus says. Peter says, yes, I phileo you. He didn't say agape. Third question, do you agape me? Jesus, yes, I, I mean, Peter, yes, I phileo you. Now, some scholars have made a point that, you know, G, that Peter never really got what Jesus was trying to instill into him in the moment. He couldn't express out of brotherly love into the sacrificial love. Maybe true. I don't know. I wasn't there. John has used these words back and forth all throughout the book of John, so it may just be that's the word he used. 
But I at least want you to know about that. There is a difference. We want to express agape love in everything we do because that means we're all in. There are people in communities that do great things because they're willing to help people, and I appreciate that. But that's different than agape Christian love, which says, I will lay down my life for you, both in the living or the dying. Because Jesus says that's how we know one another, right? So that's how we want to express love. Let me move on to the three big answers. Because we got a question times three, right? Do you love me? Peter's answer was the same the first two times of 15 and 16. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Those first two questions. What's interesting is the third, third time he answered. It's the, John tells us Peter was hurt because he had asked him the third time. And then he said this. He adds one more little caveat. Yes, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. In other words, you're the Lord. You know. You know my heart. You know that I love you, but he's hurt. Why? Because he's embarrassed. It's obvious to me that the reason Jesus asked him three times is because Peter denied him how many times? Three times. So it's like, ask, ask, ask. You denied me three times, now you're going to tell me three times. I, I feel like that's what's happening. But it's interesting that Peter is hurt by that instead of just one more time saying, yes, Lord, I love you. But why? Because that's what we do when we've fallen short. We feel that shame, right? And and we've got that inside us, and we're not sure how to get rid of it, and, and we feel like we need to do something to get that out. Lisa tells about that moment I mentioned from 21 years ago. She came here on that Sunday morning right after all of the stuff broke in our marriage, and she was sitting back there somewhere. I wasn't here. And she came forward. She calls it the 80-foot walk of shame. Because she was about to share with her community, her family, the only people in her life that she could trust enough to share something so terrible of where her life was. She wrote it out in a letter. She handed it to one of our elders and said, read this. Now, all these years later, as I look back on this moment, at the time I was pretty much impassive and disinterested because I didn't trust her. But looking back, I realized this was a person who said, you know what? I am ready to commit fully to Jesus being my Lord, and I don't care who knows where I've been. I'm convinced that Lisa and I would not be married today if she had not made that walk to finally say, this is who I am. See, that's what it takes. And we don't want to do that. We'll say, well, you know, I just talked this over the Lord, and then he just keeps asking do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And we're heard and we're like, well, you know, I love you, but there's something you're holding back until you lay it out. You can't get to healing. It happened in my life as well. Things change when we're honest about who we are. And I think that's the power of the answer here. I love Mac. I mentioned Mac Owen, one of his sayings that I still remember he would always say, Jesus loves us right where we are, but way too much to leave us there. See, it's about making the move, right, out of where we are into where the Lord wants us to be. 
It's the prodigal son in Luke 15. He's in the pig pen. He comes to his senses. He looks inward and says, why do I want to keep living this life? And then it said he gets up and starts home. My friend Kyle Alderman says it's an aha moment. It's an awareness of who I am. It's a humility that I have to prostrate myself before Jesus. And then it's action. I got to do something. I cannot stay here and be right with God. I got to make a move. And look, we can do that at any point in our lives. Here's the way Paul would put it in Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. I love that passage. That's the dimensions of Christ's love. I can't get too far away. I can't go too low. I can't be too high that Jesus' love cannot reach me. That's the power of his dimensional love. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Man, I want people to say, you're full of it. I know, I'm full of the Holy Spirit. And it is overflowing. Because that's what Jesus does in us. When we recognize his love. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, that's everything, according to his power, that his work within us, to us be glory? No. To him be glory forever and ever throughout all generations. And the church says, amen. Man. Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. That's big answers. Well, that leads us to the last thing I want to share with you. And that's that these lead lead to action, right? That's what we said earlier. I mean, the question was asked, the question was answered, and now there are actions to be taken. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Every time Peter says, I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, I know directly he was talking about Peter was going to be an elder one day. Jesus is the chief shepherd, so he's talking about his shepherding ability, so that directly went to him. But I think this principle applies to all of us. We should always be willing to pay forward what God has done in us. We should always be willing to help other people by saying, look, I know what you're going through. Let me tell you what God did in my life. The victories of God are meant to be shared. Do not be stingy with them. Let other people know what God has done in your life. That's what following him means. And that's how you feed sheep. He also said this in verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. John tells us Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So I want you to think about this. Remember, we talked about it in Luke five last week when Jesus first had this miraculous catch and Peter looked at this thing and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, yeah, I can fish for fish, but I could fish for men. Yeah, I'm in. But what happens now when Jesus says, you're going to die for the cause? 
Now come and follow me. You're going to be a martyr. That's what he's telling him. Peter's got a big decision. It's one thing to follow Jesus when things are good. But when you're facing persecution and death, are you a follower then? Are you all in? That's what he's asking him. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom John loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, what is going, who is going to betray you? John's talking about himself, of course. When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. So now he said it twice. And he said in the context of quit looking at other people. Don't we have a bad habit of that as followers, as believers? I wish I had his gift. I wish I had her talent. Well, why are they not having to? So why am I going through this terrible suffering? What about them? And we look and we look at each other and we look at each other. And where are we not looking? To Christ. Jesus says, don't worry about everybody else. You follow me. It's twice he said it. And then the last action, so our first one obviously is to follow him. This last action, John actually says about himself. And I say finish well. Look what he says in verse 23, and this is the close of the book. Because of this, what he said, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. Because remember he said, if, if I want to keep him alive till I come back. Well, they assumed they meant the final comeback, right? But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I wanted to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Because see, John still had some work to do. There was going to be another appearance by Christ. This is the disciple who testifies to make to these things and who wrote them down, talking about himself. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I wonder when John got to be an old man. He was old when he was on the Isle of Patmos. He had suffered greatly for the kingdom. Just because he was still alive, he's, he had, read the book of Martyrs and see what all he went through. Terrible, terrible things. I wonder if he looked back to this moment and remembered when he put the finishing touches on such a beautiful case for Jesus Christ. I know he wrote this in that great revelation when Jesus came back and appeared to him. He said, they triumphed over him, the evil one, in verse, Revelation 12, 11, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of, the of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Every one of those disciples went to their death praising God. And that is our greatest witness that Jesus is who he said he was. You remember how these guys were throughout his ministry? They didn't know what he was talking about. They were scared. They were hiding in a room. They certainly became different men when they truly saw who Jesus was. This year started with a sermon Trent preached called Eyes That See. I still remember it. Great sermon. About the Apostle Paul. You know, first he was saw, and then the scales came off his eye, and then, whoa! And we're going to talk about that. That seemed like more than a year ago to me. This past year, Mike and I have tried to make, and others, have tried to make the case 
for Christ in the book of John. I hope we did it. It was a fantastic journey for us. Next week, next year, we're going to start talking about the unstoppable adventure. Because these scared rabbits are going to turn into roaring lions for Jesus Christ. And here's my hope. Here's what Mike and I both are hoping. That in this process of us talking about that, if we got any scared rabbits that are looking in on live stream or in the fellowship center or right here in this main room, we want you to be a roaring lion going forward. We have great things to accomplish in Christ in 2021. We've got a culture that is still reeling and falling apart. And the old answers of where they found, they're not going to be there anymore. We got new things to share. And that's Jesus Christ. And we're going to see it through a roaring church. So my question for you today is this. Is there anything that you love more than Jesus Christ? Because the day is the day to put him back on the throne. Are you willing to confess and make him your Lord? It's what Peter did. You know that I love you. You know that. You know all things. Will you follow Jesus Christ today? If you have any questions about that, we want to give you an opportunity. Or maybe some sin in your life that you've never confessed. Just what I share with you today in my own life, in Lisa's life. Today's the day to unleash the burden and start your adventure. If you have a need, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing?